Hey there, and welcome to the Jimmy's Table podcast at jimmystable.com. I'm your host, Jimmy Humphrey. I'm curiously evangelical, politically homeless, and a dreamer of small things. On this podcast, I'm having conversations about the intersection of faith, life, and culture. So if you have honest questions, aren't afraid to have difficult conversations, and want to have a little fun along the way, then pull up a chair. This podcast is for you. So there's a lot going on in the news recently that I want to comment on, but instead of doing a bunch of individual episodes where I give a full 20 or 30 minute dialogue about these individual topics, I just kind of want to give some hot outtakes and thoughts on these particular topics. They're not necessarily related to one another, although I've kind of picked some economic topics uh, that kind of all blend in together, um, business topics and things like that. So I I think this will be fun. This is a throwback to a, a podcast format that I used to do over a year ago called Hot Topic. And I'm going to try to revise that again because uh, those podcast episodes were always fun and uh, I enjoy it. So uh, without further ado, let's just go ahead and get into this. Hot Topic. So let's talk about the lottery curse. Well, if, you, if, you're not, if you've been living under a rock, you may not be aware that there was a recently a $1.2 billion lottery in the Mega Millions Lottery nationwide here in America. And according to reports, a winning lottery ticket was sold in the state of Illinois. One ticket, it appears. So there's going to be somebody out there that gets, if they didn't lose their ticket and they remember to check, there's going to be somebody out there that gets to potentially claim one point. $2 billion. Those are inflated dollars, though. So it's it's not a billion dollars like it used to be, though. <laughs> um, but they're going to get to claim $1.2 inflated billion dollars um, on the lottery. That's, that's going to be a tremendous payout. Um, I don't know about you, but I personally played. I bought a couple of tickets. I thought, hey, what's a couple bucks? I seldom ever have played the lottery in my entire life. I could probably count on one hand how many times I've played. Um, and I thought, hey, let's go ahead and see what happens anyway, because somebody has to win, right? Somebody always has to win. Um, so here are some thoughts I have about the lottery. One, I don't believe gambling's a sin. I, I, I don't think one should chase after wealth, and I don't think one should um, pursue gambling as a regular financial strategy. But if you have a couple bucks to blow, and you're not in dire economic straits and you're on the same page with your spouse about it. If you have like two or three dollars you want to put off towards the lottery a couple of times a year, I, I, I don't believe that's wrong. I don't believe that's a sin. I don't believe there's anything in the scriptures that explicitly condemn such behavior. However, even with that said, I think you got to question the general wisdom of playing the lottery, and I say that as somebody who, you know, just bought a couple of tickets, but I got to thinking it more after I bought them, um, that, you know, that the lottery, it has a lot of problems with it. Uh, I once knew a business person who told me once, Jim, you know what a million dollars is to me? He's like, a million dollars represents a million problems. And so I've always kept that in mind because if I won a billion dollars, man, I'd have a billion problems. 
And I don't know about you, but maybe I'm willing to try to, like, of all the problems that I have in my life, maybe I'm willing to have a billion problems that are in inflated dollars. Um, it's it's kind of like Jesus said, it's hard for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. And sometimes I sit there and think, oh, Lord, I wish that were my only temptation. <laughs> Lord, let that be the cross I have to bear. Uh, I say that in jest, of course. I, I do take Jesus seriously. Um, especially as a Christian, I don't believe we are supposed to try to pursue wealth. The name of uh, Christianity is not about getting wealthy, um, and we're not supposed to be naming and claiming it and grabbing it and blabbing it and trying to be wealthy for the sake of being wealthy. There's, of course, nothing wrong with being wealthy in and of itself. Um, you know, it just happens to be the lot you've been dealt in life if you happen to be wealthy. And if your wealth comes simply as the result of hard work, entrepreneurship, um, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, not taking advantage of anybody and exploiting anybody, um, and just you know giving the world something that everybody really wants and people are like, wow, I can't, I can't live without this. Um, and you just happen to accidentally become wealthy through as the result of hard work, ingenuity, um, and a little bit of luck and just, you know, just getting dealt a, a great card in life in that regard, then I have no problem with an individual being wealthy. Um, but with that said, you know, there's something about this lottery curse stuff that's worth commenting on because it's been reported that over the history of the lottery, apparently, that over 70% of people that win these multi-million, multi-billion dollar jackpots end up filing for bankruptcy within seven years of winning these multi-million dollar, billion dollar lottery tickets. And that's just something that's always struck me as being amazing because you don't think of people that, you know, win the lottery as being people who are ever going to be uh, in financial hardships for the rest of their life. They've won enough money that they should be theoretically set for life. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to see that so many of them do not. In fact, my parents, uh, told me that they once knew somebody who won like, like a multi-million, multi-hundred million dollar lottery payout in Illinois. Um, and they knew this guy that used to live in the old neighborhood that apparently they used to live in and he was single, um, and he wasn't married. He didn't have kids. It was just him. And he won all these millions of dollars. Well, then come find out he won all this, but within a few years of him winning that, he was allegedly begging people for money. They don't know exactly what happened uh, to all his money. They didn't get in contact with him. They didn't go visit him and say, hey, remember us? We used to be your best friend in the neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, these individuals that win these lotteries end up being broken. Why is that? And I have a theory behind that. I have a theory behind that. One, not only is it you, are you broke because it really messes up your social interactions and people start uh, just, you know, coming out of the woodworks from family and friends and people who find your name in the paper and start asking you for money and you sit here and think, well, I got to give everybody some money, right? Because look at all this money I have. So you end up giving a lot of it away um, to people who are all of a sudden like your third, fourth, and fifth cousins. Uh, who are just like, hey, you know, I, I deserve something too. You should just share the wealth. But I think the primary reason so many people that win the lottery, these multi-million, multi-billion dollar uh, payouts, 
end up going broke within seven years is simply because of the nature of wealth. If you didn't earn the wealth as a result of hard work coming up with an in, you know, this brilliant product or service that people want and are willing to pay you for, and you didn't sweat blood and tears and uh, trying to establish your little uh, kingdom and build an empire for yourself, and if, if you didn't work hard at doing that, then you don't actually know what a billion dollars is if somebody gave it to you. And as a result of not creating wealth through hard work, creating something that can be sold and bought, um, and running a business, creating a product that the, that the people of the world want, as a result of not putting in the sweat, blood, and tears to create wealth, and you just end up winning it through luck, well, then not only do you have no concept of what a billion dollars is, but you also have no idea on how to manage it. Um, and th I think that's why a lot of these people grow broke. And this is also why, by the way, as a side note, the libertarian sort of conservative-leaning politi uh, political person I am in my uh, you know, lack of political tribe, but still having some sort of uh, political convictions about things. Um, you know, I think this is why uh, bailouts and this is why handouts and, and, you know, why just putting people on the dole doesn't work out too well. You can't just go spread the wealth because people who didn't earn it through hard work, saving, thrift, creating business, um, and, and creating jobs and skills and, and products and things that people want to buy and sell and engage in trade, people who didn't earn it will never understand the money that they've been given and they will always squander it. Um, and don't get me wrong, I'm not poor shaming people. You know, there's plenty of legitimate reasons why hardworking people um, who sweat blood and tears end up being poor, no fault of their own. I'm not saying they're poor because they're stupid or they're poor because they're lazy. I, you know, I've talked about this in prior podcast about why people are poor, and so much of it has to do with the systems of, of economics and government that we, that we live in and the world that we live in. So it's, a, it's something that happens in context. However, even with that said, let me sit there and say, if you didn't, if you didn't earn it, save it, and invest it in order to build your wealth, then just simply spreading around wealth is not going to do anything but cause it to be destroyed. And that is why so many millionaires and billionaires are very careful about leaving their children um, wealth for years on end because it's an old saying that the first generation earns it, the second generation maintains it, and then the third spends it. And so you have this entire notion that it's just like this wealth destruction machine. And it's just simply human nature at work. That yes, the Bill Gates of the world, they went ahead and built these massive fortunes by industry and thrift and, you know, some cunningness and taking advantage of the system, sure. But whatever sort of negative things you want to say about billionaires, and believe me, I have some comments about them I, I could gladly say, they still know what it was like to fight and scrape for every dollar that they ultimately earned, however it came to them. Um, and that's why, as a result, many of these people are very reluctant just to, just to hand it out and just to pass it on to future generations because you ultimately need to 
if you're going to be rich, you need to ultimately earn that money. Because if you don't earn it, and you just win it or are given the money, at the end of the day, you're going to not understand what you've been given. You're going to take it for granted. And you're just going to end up back where you were. And that's why so many people who play the lottery win. Win more money than an entire village of people will ever see in their lifetime. Money that could impact multi-generations for generations to come. Ultimately end up squandering it and seeing it all destroyed because they didn't earn it. So be careful if you play the lottery. Because not only is the lottery going to mess up your personal life and uh, change the relationships of the people you know. Um, it's going to change your wife. It's going to change your kids. It's going to change your siblings. It's going to change your parents. It's going to change your neighbors. You're probably going to have to live behind a gated community and not trust anybody because everybody's always trying to get your money. You won by luck. Um, you know, So you're going to have a billion people trying to take your billion dollars. Um, and you're going to have to be very careful. But at the end of the day, if you won the lottery, and maybe if you're the person that in Illinois that listens to this podcast, because uh, there are some people in Chicago that just love this podcast, by the way. Uh, some of you make up my biggest uh, followers uh, on this podcast. Uh, but if you happen to have won the billion dollars, hey, email me, jimmy at jimmystable.com. Uh, <laughs> maybe we can, uh, you can buy some uh, advertising space on this podcast that gets you know, a hundred downloads a week. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, so anyway, oh yeah, by the way, if you win the lottery, keep working because work is a force that gives us meaning. And the last thing you want to do is just get a billion dollars and then go sit on a tropical island somewhere and just hang out and wait to die. Go do something productive, go create something, go invest in something amazing. Um, and not just whatever your cousin Eddie is trying to pitch you about his latest investment thing. Um, but find some people who really know how to put the money to work and have them go get that money working. And then work with them to help create whatever it is that they are doing. Don't just sit on your money. Um, we were created by God as in the image of God to work since the beginning of creation. So continue to work and, and let the money that you do have be an excuse to encourage you to do the meaningful work of the things you really ultimately want to do and not just do to collect a paycheck at the end of the way. Hot topic. So this next story is about a preacher robbed of a million dollars in jewelry while he was preaching. It was recently reported that a preacher in Brooklyn, New York, by the name of Lamar Whitehead, was robbed of a million dollars in jewelry, originally reported as $400,000 in jewelry, um, that he happened to be wearing while preaching. Uh, and this not only happened while he was preaching in his church, but apparently he live-streamed his message to people who turn in to listen to him every week. Um, and so he was armed by gunpoint um, with, I believe, masked men who decided to, to take his stuff. Um, this guy was basically, <laughs> I like to say, he's the Mr. T of ministers. Apparently this guy was just all decked out in gold bling, like gold necklaces. And, and he even, even wore gold necklaces apparently under the, uh, the bishop's uh, cloak or whatever, the garb that he was wearing, the, uh, the dress he was wearing, <laughs> for lack of a better term, the, the, uh, the, the covering he was wearing while preaching. 
Um, and so he had his gold on the outside, gold underneath. He had his gold watch, his rings, and, and all these things. He had a million dollars or $400,000 of it, depending on what you want to tell the insurance agencies um, for that sort of thing. But apparently he was wearing all this gaudy, expensive jewelry while preaching. Um, and lay, later asked about why he, you know, would wear such extravagant jewelry while preaching. Um, White, the, uh, Lamar Whitehead simply said, It is my prerogative to purchase what I want to purchase. If I work hard for it, I can purchase what I want to purchase. And the good capitalist in me says, yeah, man, like, that's right. You're, you're a capitalist. You work hard. I don't know exactly what he worked hard at doing uh, to get millions of dollars worth of jewelry. I don't know if, uh, I, I don't know if it's just uh, his preaching gig that he has going on, and he's just fleecing the church uh, for his just outstanding ministry, and they just want to bless the man of God. Or if he is, uh, you know, a successful real estate guy on the side, has a multi-level marketing program, uh, or just does some other activity. Maybe he's just like a stock whiz who, who knows how to invest. I don't know where he got his money in order to buy his jewelry and his bling, but it kind of got me to thinking with, with all that. This, this sort of comment that he says, well, it's my prerogative to buy whatever I want because I earned it, so who are you to criticize me? And to some degree, I'm like, yeah, fair point. Like You shouldn't let people criticize you for... What you buy, what you buy is the fruit of your labor. And if you want to enjoy the fruit of your labor, you know, have at it. But, and I say a big but here, that while it is his prerogative to do what he wants with his money as he sees fit, I think there's this unfortunate attitude that has crept into American Christianity that when a preacher like him can wear a million dollars worth of jewelry from the pulpit while preaching, lacks the ability to discern and say why that is wrong and why he shouldn't be doing that and why that shouldn't be his attitude. And we have a hard time saying that because we're, as, as the late Art Katz used to fondly say so often while he was preaching, we're far too American. And in our American culture, we can sit here and say, it is my prerogative to buy what I want. And if I want to buy and live a life of luxury, like, what's that to you? That's, that's, that's my private business. That's my money. I earned it. Uh, I should be able to live as luxuriously as I want to, right? Um, and we say those sort of things. And, you know, he can say it. And we can't criticize him as to why. Because, frankly, at the end of the day, most of us live that same sort of lifestyle, too. We just don't have a million dollars laying around so that we can buy the gaudy jewelry and wear it while we preach or go to work or do whatever it is we want to do. But the reason why we can't criticize him and have no ability to is because we're so blinded by that ethos, that sort of capitalist mindset. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm a very capitalist sort of guy at the end of the day. I, you won't find me criticizing capitalism too much. I think free market capitalism is a wonderful and beautiful thing, and we can talk about that on another podcast. However, even with that said, even though it is your prerogative to spend what you want to spend and enjoy the fruit of your labor if you work hard, you know, um, work hard, play hard sort of mentality, at the end of the day, we as Christians are all called to live modest and frugal lifestyles. We're not supposed to be living lifestyles of the rich and famous. There's nothing Christian about living that sort of way. 
And while most of us are certainly in no threat of living lavish, uh, multi-million dollar lifestyles and just indulging in, in all the desires of everything that we want to buy and being able to buy it, um, at the same time, I feel like you know, we still have this sort of lifestyle creep, this lifestyle inflation that a lot of um, financial people like to talk about. Um, you know, one thing I've learned as a mortgage underwriter over the years, um, people would be shocked to learn, especially, you know, with, uh, with high income earners, is to find out that most of them are just as stretched financially as, as you are. Many of them, the lawyers, the doctors, the entrepreneurs, the CEOs, the, the, the people who like have these high paying jobs and people who are even of like professional sports and entertainment status and who have multi-million dollar types of jobs. Not all of them, but many of them are stretched financially too because they experienced a lifestyle creep. They were already living paycheck to paycheck um, before they were rich. And a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them continue living paycheck to paycheck even after they become rich. Because there's this sense in which all of us simply have this desire in our heart that is never satisfied. Um, we're always wanting more and we never feel like we have enough. And no matter how much we get we will always find ourselves still saying, I need more. We lack the ability to be content with what we have. It's not enough for us just to have food and shelter and clothes on our back um, and a modest means of lifestyle that allows us to live with dignity. But we're always pursuing the latest and greatest. We're always pursuing the biggest names of whatever it is that we can afford to buy. Um, and this exists not only amongst the millionaire, billionaire class to some extent, uh, but this exists even amongst just the more modest of us and in income. It's certainly a temptation as a Christian that I have dealt with over the years that, you know, I've definitely been in a place where I stretched myself financially because I wanted more and more and the latest and greatest stuff. Um, but, you know, we have to resist that urge. We have to resist that lust, that, that desire, which, which is ultimately greed. Materialism is not supposed to be something that you and I are participants of in our culture. Um, we're not supposed to be materialistic in our disposition. And I say that as a guy who has some nice stuff. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with owning nice stuff in and of itself. Um, you know, you definitely buy good quality things, buy things that meet the needs that you have, whatever it is that you're buying to meet the needs of, but resist the urge just to go do some drunken midnight shopping on Amazon. <laughs> just because it's prime day in July doesn't mean you have to go buy all sorts of stuff on Amazon and load up on your shopping cart and get into a lot of debt, um, so that you can provide for you and your family with all the material desires that you have. Have a sense of frugality about you. Have a sense of modesty about you. And modest isn't just a term that we should use as Christians in referring to how much skin a man or woman shows 
uh, you know, when it comes to cleavage or muscles and their flesh and how they dress on the beach or how they dress at the club or how they dress for church or however it is they're getting dressed whenever they get dressed. Modesty is not just about how much skin you're showing in a sexual thing, although don't get me wrong, let's be clear, it can be that too. But there's this sense of modesty that you and I should live with that we're not trying to chase the latest and greatest and the biggest and the baddest. We don't have to have all the things and that's not our goal in life is to consume all the things. We're not chasing after wealth. We're not trying to live a life of luxury and keeping up with the Joneses and trying to, to, to be lifestyle of the rich and famous. That's not the spirit of a Christian. The spirit of a Christian is supposed to be that of being frugal, of being a good steward of that which God has given you and utilizing the gifts and talents and money and things that God has placed in your life for the betterment of others and not just simply you and your family. Oh yeah, and then the entire promoting of the gospel too, by the way. So with that said, million dollar jewelry preacher, you know, I don't like it. I don't like it that uh, he's wearing Mr. T level gold jewelry in the pulpit to preach. He apparently has the need uh, to be a peacock and to look good and, and bling and to set a certain status about himself while preaching. But guess what? You know, you and I do that too um, when it comes to perhaps some of the things that we buy. We want the latest jeans and the designer fashion and stuff like that. And I find it kind of disgusting um, that we allow so many preachers, whether we're talking about Stephen Furtick or Creflo Dollar or um, T.D. Jakes or um, Kenneth Copeland and all these famous TV preachers and stuff like that. I find it pretty disgusting that we allow so many of these jackals to flourish in our midst and to become the the darlings that they are in the church, these super anointed individuals that we dare not criticize. Um, and we love them to be rich. We love them to be successful. We want them to wear the latest and greatest and to always look sharp and to, to have the private jets and all those things. And we want them to have that because we want those things for ourselves too. But that's not supposed to be the way we are. We're supposed to be frugal and modest. We're not supposed to be flashy and wearing our gold and our bling. We're not supposed to be trying to impress people. We're supposed to have a quiet and humble spirit about us, not something that attracts undue attention to ourselves because we're so busy putting on a full display for everybody to see. But we're supposed to be quiet and unnoticed because we are simply trying to magnify Christ and our bodies. And Christ is most clearly seen not in the gold apparel, not in the fancy dress, not in the flashy houses or cars. That's not where you see Jesus. Remember, we have a Lord who was born in a manger and a place away from the show. And I think when, we're, when preachers like this or when we ourselves engage in these ostentatious displays of wealth and money and power and prestige, we're not demonstrating Christ or the goodness of God. We're saying something about ourselves instead of the one we ultimately serve. Hot topic! Is the United States in a recession? Well, is it? 
According to Investopedia and classic definitions of what a recession is, generally speaking, broadly speaking, a recession is generally defined as two consecutive quarters in which the economic output of the United States, also known as the gross domestic product or GDP, suffers decline. And if you've been following any of the business news, the United States has indeed seen two consecutive quarters in which the gross domestic product of the United States has declined. But there are some economists who aren't willing to call the current economic cycle a recession just yet because, well, some of it's politics and it's being connected to the Biden administration, but some of it's also due to some technical details. Um, In addition to two consecutive quarters of economic decline, In the GDP, the National Bureau of Economic Research, or NBR, says that other factors must also be taken into consideration, uh, such as the unemployment rate, payrolls, industrial production, retail sales, and a bunch of other little tiny bullet points that, when they all fall in line to a certain degree, and it's not an exact sort of scientific thing, like they ultimately declare, hey, when a number of these points, you know, add up at the end of the day, then we're in a recession. So it's not just a simple matter of the GDP seeing two quarters in a row of economic decline. So it's not that simple. However, with that said, while the NBR is not willing to officially declare the United States to be in a recession despite the two consecutive quarters, which is generally the, the broader definition of what a recession is nine times out of ten, I'm not sure about you, but while this technically may be true, that that we're not in a recession according to whatever NBR uh, definition of a recession is, a lot of this definition kind of feels like new math to me. (laughs) You know, new math, all the things the kids are learning, the algebra you learned and the pre-algebra you learned and the arithmetic you er learned as a kid is not apparently how they do arithmetic anymore. And those of you who have children probably learned that, you know, long division is not done like long division used to be. Um, You know, I kind of feel like this willingness or lack of willingness of the NBR to say that uh, we're not in a recession right now. It definitely has that new math sort of feeling, and it's left a lot of people confused about it. But at the same time, it kind of has put, you know, the the political spin aspect of it has been easy, uh, interesting, because they say, well, you know, we're not willing to say it is a recession yet. And you have individuals like Joe Biden saying, yeah, we're, we're not in a recession yet. But that's not exactly a good look politically when so many people are suffering um, in the economy right now from the challenges associated with inflation. When everything is so expensive and people are starting to run up massive debts and houses are getting more expensive and rent is getting more expensive and cars are getting more expensive. And when your paycheck doesn't creep up as much as it used to creep up and and chicken at the grocery store costs more than chicken at the grocery store used to cost a year ago, um, the fact that we've had two consecutive quarters with GDP contraction definitely makes it feel to the layman that uh, we're in a recession. I personally would say we are. It may not meet the economic requirements of of the National Bureau of Economic Research. 
But I think the folks at NBR just need to go full Michael Scott. Remember that episode of The Office where Michael Scott goes bankrupt and he doesn't know how you're supposed to go bankrupt, so he just stands in the middle of the office and, and says at work, I declare bankruptcy! And then he thinks that's it. <laughs> so I think, I think NBR just needs to go ahead uh, and just need to go full tilt here and just need to say, we are in a recession! Because it certainly feels like it, right? Hot topic! So last but not least, how does Elon Musk do all that he does? Have you ever thought about this? You know, a few months ago, in the middle of running Tesla, SpaceX, the boring company, having uh, alleged affairs with several different women, and recently having his ninth child, Elon Musk thought he didn't have enough going on in his life, so he decided to engage in a hostile corporate takeover of social media company Twitter. But he recently decided to back out of the deal. He started saying crazy things like Twitter has too many spam robots on them and there's a bunch of spam accounts. And since Twitter can't prove that it's uh, less than the number that they uh, you know, have reported to me, um, or have publicly reported since they can't really prove that there's only 5% of the user base of Twitter being robots. It feels like a lot more. And Elon Musk has an idea based off his research and people that look into these things that it's much more than 5% of the company that, or 5% of uh, Twitter accounts that are, are spam bots. Um, since Twitter can't definitively prove it's only 5%, even though they do put a disclaimer out there that could be more. Elon Musk is deciding, oops, I'm, I'm canceling the, the stock takeover of Twitter. I'm no longer going to buy the company. And so now the courts will get to decide because apparently uh, Elon Musk can't really just back out of this deal. There's all sorts of complex legal stuff that's going on and he's it sounds like from what I've heard and the commentators I've heard that he's pretty much on the hook at this point to uh, buy Twitter like he previously agreed to buy um, because technically, I guess, Twitter hasn't done anything wrong that would allow him to, to cancel the deal. Um, but I'm no legal expert, so I'm not going to say 100% about you know, what is right or wrong in that regard. Uh, I just want to sit here and talk about Musk for a second because... Like I said, Elon Musk is a busy guy. It's Tesla. He's got his, his car battery company. So he's, he's busy, you know, trying to get his cars running. And he keeps running into production problems and, and things of that nature. And he's always having to help solve these problems. And he does things like sleep at the factory. And, and he's always constantly over there tinkling with Tesla, trying to get up and running and, and changing the, the world with his electric cars. But if that wasn't enough, if he didn't have enough already going, he also has SpaceX, that, that rocket company that blasts rockets into space privately uh, so they can launch satellites. And they're not only able to do that, but they're also able to reuse the rockets by having the rockets land in reverse. So in the same way the rocket goes boom and explodes and goes up into the atmosphere, the rocket also goes boom and it makes a safe landing standing straight up. Uh, in the middle of the ocean, nonetheless. So quite an, uh, an amazing engineering feat 
that Musk has been able to do something nobody has ever been able to do except for him and the company. And then, of course, there's the boring company in which he's trying to make um, these fancy uh, these fancy tubes for us to transport ourselves in, basically, uh, instead of having uh, mass transit, we're supposed to get in like this suction tube, like you have the bank when you go to the bank teller and you drive your car up there and they drop the little thing through the tube and then you put your money uh, or your check in the tube and just go straight up into the tube and back to the teller. Well, he's he's got a company called The Boring Company in which he's trying to create uh, a, a similar thing called the Hyperloop um, in which it's supposed to make more efficient, safer travel. Of course, I don't know how that's supposed to factor into uh, Tesla and his car company, but apparently it's all good and he's happy to have all three companies. But of course, then there's the alleged affairs that he's been having, whether he's had them or not, I don't know. Uh, it's been reported that he has. Uh, people have accused him. The husbands of these people have accused him of having affairs. Um, from what I understand, Johnny Depp accused him. And uh, recently, I think the... One of the top executive people over at Google, if I'm not mistaken, um, accused Elon Musk of having an affair. I don't know. I don't really care about the gossip. But man, the guy also has nine kids. So it got me to thinking, how is it that Elon Musk does all these things? Because here I am, just the average guy that I am, and I work 40, maybe 50 plus hours a week, depending on how much volume is happening at work with, when it comes to mortgages. And here I am uh, working 40, 50 hours a week. I'm active in the life of my church. I maintain healthy relationships with friends and family. Um, I take time to work out. I'm trying to get back into hockey, like I talked about on my podcast last week. Um, and then make time to like do my podcast and engage in some other hobbies and things that I enjoy doing for fun. So I got me to thinking, how in the world does Elon Musk Managed to do that, all this stuff, because I certainly couldn't run Tesla, let alone Tesla, SpaceX, boring company, and have affairs with women and take care of nine children at the same time. <laughs> you know, how, how does Elon Musk do How does he do it? How does he do it? Where does he find the time, energy, or resources, and ability to be able to do all that? And I've come up with a theory. And I'm going to put this theory out there for the universe and the internet to judge. I could be right. I could be wrong. I think I'm right. I think I'm right. But I think there's only one logical answer, and it's simply this. Elon Musk has obviously cloned himself at some point. <laughs> I don't know how he's done it, but it's the only logical conclusion I can come up with that the only way that Elon Musk could be running Tesla, SpaceX, the boring company, having affairs with women and taking care of nine children all at the same time is there's multiple Elon Musk out there. And it's just that simple. So everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, jimmystable.com, where I'm having conversations about the intersection of faith, life, and culture. If you've enjoyed this hot topic podcast episode this week, email me, jimmy at jimmystable.com. If you haven't had the opportunity to subscribe to jimmystable.com yet, you can do that through your favorite podcast tool, or you can go to jimmystable.com slash subscribe and find out all the fantastic ways you can subscribe to this podcast and if you haven't had a chance to leave a glowing five-star review yet, you know, take some time. Elon Musk obviously has the time uh, to do so much. So you have the time to go to Apple or Spotify or Amazon and leave a glowing five-star review for the jimmystable.com podcast. So everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, jimmystable.com, where I'm having conversations about the intersection of faith, life, and culture. 
Take care, everybody. God bless. Have a good one. That's all I have to say about that. That's the right on, man. You said it all.